Tonight's talk is a continuation of the talk that I started the other night about enlightenment and empowerment. I'd like to discuss more about how this path of awakening requires a very subtle balance within our minds, which is the development of the seven factors of enlightenment. In most people's daily lives, balance might mean just taking one breath in a very busy day, or being able to take the time to sit for one hour, or choosing between that and taking a walk. And for most people in their daily lives, it's very easy to lose the thread of mindfulness, not only for a few minutes or a few hours, but maybe maybe the whole day. When we come on a retreat, it's a very special opportunity to explore balance on a much deeper level. We get to understand how to bring about within our moment-to-moment experience a sense of well-being and peace, how to be able to flow with the many changes that occur in our life and to not be bothered by them, not to struggle. It's really learning how to be happy. We learn the ability to be totally open in one moment, just as a flower opens. And this is what allows this happiness to blossom. This is what is called enlightenment or awakening. Mindfulness, which is the first factor of enlightenment, is considered to be the most important. It's most valuable because it's necessary in all circumstances to keep this balance. Whereas the other six factors of enlightenment are not always appropriate. The other six factors are divided into the energizing factors and the softening factors. The arousing factors are investigation, energy, and rapture. The tranquilizing factors are calm, concentration, equanimity. As I described the other evening, we all generally tend to be imbalanced on one side or the other of that division. We tend to be more soft or more disciplined or hard. It's usually a work of a lifetime to be able to bring that more general imbalance into balance. As one gets quieter and quieter on a retreat, 
it becomes clear that even during one sitting or even during one walking period, it's necessary to learn how to balance ourselves. We need to learn how to arouse the energy if we're sluggish. We need to learn how to soften the energy if we're too stimulated. Learning to balance these seven factors of enlightenment within ourselves, to me, is the essence of the practice. When we can do this, inner guidance occurs. We can learn to ask ourselves at any moment, what do I need to balance myself right now? Do I need more joy? Do I need less concentration? Do I need to soften? More investigation, whatever. Our minds cannot deepen unless we're relaxed. If we try too hard, we become too tight and then we can't focus our attention microscopically. We can't feel any sensations. If we become too soft, we go to sleep. Effortless practice is when there is a profound balance of softness and alertness, of vulnerability and strength, of gentleness and precision. This past winter, Stephen and I began to do some ocean kayaking in a bay right near where we live in Honolulu. And I've never done anything like this kind of water sport. And my tendency at the beginning, especially when the wind would be blowing very hard and we were going into the wind, was to use all my strength, which I'm not that known for the strength in my arms anyway, but I would try really hard to paddle as hard as I could into the wind. I'd work harder and harder, and I'd try harder and harder, and I'd be exhausted. You know, it was horrible. If we just use our strength and we force, we get tired. It's exhausting very quickly. I slowly learned in the kayaking that it's much more effective if one relaxes and you use just enough strength. And when we can do that in kayaking, you can go for very long distances. And within that, strength develops within that process. One becomes more refined in the process. If one gets too soft in the kayaking or too loose, one would drop the paddle. One wouldn't go anywhere. There are times in kayaking when the balance is just right. There's this balance of relaxation and strength. And you just flow along. It's so rewarding. And meditation is similar. It's known as the middle path. 
It's that balance between being too tight or too loose. We learn this very subtle, profound balance by losing our balance over and over and over. We learn to play the razor's edge of being focused and soft. And over time, we, we learn to balance ourselves. The Buddha used fire as a metaphor for balancing the seven factors of enlightenment. He used this metaphor of a fire blazing just right. The fire can get too big and get out of control, or it can get too small and the fire will go out. This is part of a quotation from the Samyutta Nikaya. It's called the right and wrong times, or fire. And I'll read from it again when I talk about the um, tranquilizing factors. This is about the energizing factors. Suppose a person wants to make a small fire blaze. If they heap wet grass, wet cow dung, and wet sticks on it, if they expose it to wind and rain and sprinkle it with dust, can they make this small fire blaze? No, indeed, Lord. Just so, when the mind is sluggish, that is the wrong time to cultivate the enlightenment factors of concentration, calm, and equanimity, because a sluggish mind is hard to arouse through these factors. But when the mind is sluggish, that is the right time to cultivate the enlightenment factor of investigation, of energy, and of rapture. What is the reason? A sluggish mind is easy to arouse by these factors. Suppose a person wants to make a small fire blaze. If they heap dry grass, dry cow dung, and dry sticks in it, blows on it with their mouth, and does not sprinkle it with dust, can they make that fire blaze? Yes, indeed, Lord. A sluggish mind is easy to arouse through these factors. to just going over the first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. Mindfulness is the strong observing power. It's that ability to know what it is that is happening without judging or interpreting. It's that ability to aim the attention, synchronize with the object, feel what it is that's happening and then know what it is that's happening. 
When I first came to do the meditation practice called Vipassana and then went home to visit my father and stepmother, my stepmother was convinced that I had been brainwashed. And at first I got very defensive and argued about how I hadn't been brainwashed. And then I thought about the actual word, brainwashing. And <laughs> then I agreed with her. <laughs> yeah, I have been brainwashed. It's this incredible cleansing of the mind. Of course, she didn't <laughs> understand. Uh, <laughs> and still doesn't. Uh, when we aim the attention, synchronize, and then rub, what happens is it's just like washing a cloth. Dirt comes out. And that's why this process is so difficult. You'll want to be able to do that, but many times you won't be able to because there's this dirt coming out and you're having to deal with that. And we think that something's wrong when the dirt comes out, but actually this rubbing and aiming is a tremendous purification process. When you begin a retreat, what happens is what we call the multiple hindrance attacks. And that's good. That's meaning that all the stuff is coming to the surface. You're aiming and rubbing. And as you let that dirt come out, the more openness and spaciousness there is and the more purification that happens, the more energy that will come. You might not have a perspective even of just a week, but I'm sure that some of you are experiencing a settling in process at this point and a little more energy. And that's how it happens. The first few days are rough because there's so much dirt coming out. So it can be very difficult and just to know that that's okay, it's good. The second factor of enlightenment is called investigation and that's radiance of mind. It's that quality of mind that helps us to look more closely at the object. It lights up our object of our attention. <clears throat> I wanted to just describe briefly the energizing factors. This is investigation. And then energy is often described as the courage it takes to actually be in the present moment, to be with what's happening. <clears throat> the energy it takes to do this. And the third is rapture or joyful interest in whatever is happening. These are the energizing factors. Investigation. Investigation is that light of mind that illuminates the whole show. It's what enables us to take that closer look. And when we do this, we begin to see that it's not what's happening that's important. It's how we're relating to what's happening that's so important. When we make this 
close investigation, we begin to see that there's this continual contact with objects, moment by moment. Within one moment, there's this birth and death of consciousness. Investigation is what allows us to awaken to this flow of touching, this fluidity of sensations that are occurring. Investigation is getting more and more in touch. Chief Joseph, who was a Native American Indian, said that all things are connected like the blood that unites us all. What is this blood that unites us all? In regard to physical phenomena, there are the four great elements. There's earth element, air element, fire element, and water element. Earth element are all the variations between hardness and softness. These are, these are things that you actually experience. Air element is all the dynamic aspects of movement. It includes pulling, tightness, vibrations, tension, pressure. Fire element are all the variations of temperature from coolness, cold, to warmth, to hot, to burning. Water element is fluidity. It's cohesion. It's what unites all the other elements. When we start to explore these four great elements, what we're doing is dropping levels between what our idea is about our experience and what's actually there, what our experience is free from concept. So, for example, if you're exploring the knee area, investigation would be allowing you to look closely to see, well, what is knee? What is knee besides our idea about it? What's your direct experience of it? What is pain? In regard to mental phenomena, because investigation lights up physical and mental phenomena, when you take a closer look, you begin to see that consciousness is what allows us to know an object. If, for example, you're watching the rising-falling movement at the abdomen and you notice tension or pressure, the pressure or tension cannot know itself. There's a difference between that physical phenomena and the knowing of it, the mental phenomena. They're very closely related, but in any given moment we can distinguish the two. There are two processes that are happening. There's the sensation of tension, and there's the knowing of it, the awareness of it. 
after repeated investigation, after looking closely over and over at physical or mental phenomena, it's said that the three characteristics of existence become clear to us and we have deeper and deeper levels of understanding of these three characteristics. And it's said that we come to understand these in order. So the first is anicca, that sense of constant change, the constant contact, separation, different objects occurring moment by moment, and the velocity that that's happening at, the amazing quickness of that change. When we see this amazing change, and this is one reason why we encourage you to watch whatever your attention is with very closely, because we begin to see how it changes. What happens to that tension in the abdomen? What happens to the movement of the leg? What happens to the rising movement? What happens with placing? What happens when we chew a rice cake? Whatever, it's, it's being able to look and see. How is it changing? Through investigation, the direct experience of impermanence is deeply integrated in our understanding. We begin to see the four great elements arising and passing earth, air, fire, water. We begin to see the mental phenomena as this flow of moods and emotions and thoughts, feelings coming and going. We begin to see that this, what we call my body and mind, are in constant flux. There's nothing solid. This makes space for understanding of dukkha, which is often translated as suffering, but its meaning is this deep insecurity, this deep vulnerability that we all share because of this constant change. When we look more closely at this change and this vulnerability, there makes space for the understanding of anatta, that we're in a process, that it's just process, and that there's no solid I behind that process. How does this sense of I happen? Investigation is what allows us to explore this moment by moment. One thing that's important is that we begin to see that our usual sense of happiness is a sensual happiness. It's usually based on the union of one of our sense doors with an object. If one explores this over and over, we begin to see that this kind of sensual happiness is very ephemeral. It's not very dependable. It's like trying to hold on to a sunset, or these autumn leaves falling, or a bubble. 
it's not a very secure kind of happiness. It's not to reject that there's a happiness that can come from the sensual world, but it's not a deeper, lasting kind of happiness. Sometimes when we begin to see this fragility of what we're used to being happiness, it's what is called in a lot of traditions the dark night of the soul. And it's necessary and important to go through this difficult period because it's what allows us to go deeper and deeper to explore that there's something else. There is a deeper kind of happiness. And there's a great sense of relief when one finds that because our lives have been so... uh, our our happiness has been so dependent on that uh, undependable kind of sensual happiness. It's what we all have a homing instinct for. It's what we yearn for so deeply. The function of investigation is to dispel the illusion. It unveils Mara, or the veil of darkness over our eyes. It's what allows exploration to happen. It lightens up the object moment by moment. And the cause of investigation is wise attention. This is called insight meditation. And the first insight requires mindfulness. And the subsequent insights come from this first insight. Investigation is so important because it keeps us from getting stagnant. It helps us to wake up when we feel stuck or when we're struggling. Any time that you're suffering in any way, you can ask yourself, what's happening? Investigation clears the perception. It allows us to explore what is birth, what is death. What is it to be a human being? What is breath? What is walking? We can't force investigation. Investigation has to be born out of a very soft, gentle kind of attention. You'll see that it's very natural to want to explore. It's very natural to want to discover when the mind is relaxed. It's innate to the human being. So of the arousing factors of enlightenment, the first is investigation, and the second is energy. Energy isn't meant to be a a tense kind of efforting. It's not trying too hard. Sometimes it's helpful to think of energy as a profound listening. 
if you have a tendency to try too hard. Energy is the courage to bring our attention face to face with whatever's happening. And it's the enduring patience to be with whatever's happening even when it's difficult. You're all on a tremendous journey. This process of investigating who we are, what, what is life all about. It's a deep inner exploration. And this takes tremendous energy. It's just like climbing a mountain. And when we climb a mountain, it's not like we can just go part way up and stop <laughs> and forget it. So we have to stay steady, climb and climb. And then we get to the top. And when we get to the top, there's a change of perspective entirely. This is what meditation is meant to do. It's meant to change our perspective entirely, completely. Because we just can't stop halfway up the mountain, one of the things that I think is really important is learning how to keep going no matter what. A three-month course especially is a kind of marathon and it's important to know how to pace yourselves. This past retreat that I was doing here for two months this summer, there were times when I was doing the walking meditation and I'd be so tired, you know, and i just want to go to bed. <laughs> and there were times when I'd imagine myself just lying down next to myself. I just picture myself going to bed and sometimes I'd tuck myself in and I'd keep walking. <laughs> and this might sound crazy, but whatever works for you, <laughs> do it. If you have to imagine yourself taking a five-hour nap. But just then keep going. Don't step on yourself. Just <laughs> but don't actually do it. <laughs> Another meta a metaphor that helps me when I start to get tired is to think of a bird that's going up into the sky and about to soar higher and higher. When they're on their way up, again, there's this metaphor of going up to change your perspective entirely. They don't just stop flapping their wings or they just crash. They keep flapping, no matter what. And it's, it is possible to do this. It is possible to keep going, even when we're bored, even when it feels like you're going through lead or cement. And one way to work with this <coughs> is to learn how to rest the mind. <coughs> one of the things that I've found that we all do when we're tired is instead of backing off and just lightly being with the movement of the legs, say when you're walking, just lightly being with the movement of the breath, it's not looking for detail. It's, it's not being microscopic. It's just like playing with the lens of a camera. You can play with the lens 
open up as much as you need to. You might get a little more energy, close the, the lens down some more. This is the whole key to learning how to keep flapping. It's learning how to back off to the point where you're not asleep, but you're present lightly. What we usually do is that's when we take the 15-minute fantasies. You know, even when they're the most morbid, <laughs> unpleasant fantasies, they can be horrible, but they're what we do to rest our mind. Because we can't bear to be microscopic anymore, or we're trying too hard. And because we've been trying too hard or pushing, and this is just about balance, we go to the other extreme and we just go off and space out for a long time until we feel like doing it again. So the key in this case is learning how to rest without going that far off. Another aspect of energy is learning about the relationship between energy and how it affects our ability to open. Energy does affect our ability to open to what's happening very profoundly. I know that I've already done a pretty heavy sell for the three-part walking. When I first had my first interviews with Upandita in 1984, I had never heard of the three speeds of walking and I'd only seen people, I only had role models of people doing very slow walking. I had only done very slow walking. And I did literally think that he was punishing me. And every day I thought, well, maybe I'm going to be good enough and he's going <laughs> to stop this stuff. And then as I started to get more concentrated, and I'd have these very concentrated sittings and then go to do the walking, and that first speed would seem terrible. And I'd walk into Upandita and I'd say, you can't mean that you want me to speed up when I'm in that state. <laughs> yes, he did. He wanted to bring about a balance. He wanted me to get the energy up so high that there'd be more and more mindfulness. And so our tendency is to move toward concentration. We like it. It feels good. And there's, a, there's less of a tendency to want to move into the mindfulness, which is often a little less pleasant at first, bef before we get to know the difference. We can't always see the direct results of the three speeds of walking, but it does, in time, really lift the energy. I used to see walking as a kind of filler. You know, I'd sit, and I'd sit, and I'd sit, and I'd sit in the hall or in my room till my energy totally crashed. And then I'd go, okay, time for a little walking. And then I'd go back and sit and sit and sit until my energy crashed again. And my energy would be like these huge ups and downs because I'd go for the concentration. And I've learned that there's actual this possibility of... You still go up and down, but there's this build-up of energy. 
And it's the build-up of energy that allows us to change our perspective entirely. It takes tremendous energy to change your perspective. The more energy we have, the more strength and courage there is to face the dirt that comes up in this process. And the more mindfulness there can be, the more light in the mind. From a long-range view, I've seen my practice change a lot over the years. Whereas initially I'd go for the concentration or I would go for very special or interesting experiences. And my whole um, strategy of a day would be to try to get the special experiences and do and manipulate whatever I could to do that. It's shifted to really working with getting the energy up so that I can be mindful more and more. That the goal is the mindfulness itself. Mindfulness being this ability to flow with what's happening, to open to what's happening, no matter what it is. Because there's so much peace in that. There's so much happiness in that. It gets very subtle, though. (laughs) You'll find that there's this subtler and subtler balance between expecting and wanting the good sittings and wanting the good times, and just being, just having that pure awareness. It's exciting and wonderful and difficult, this subtlety of balance. So the great challenge is to get our amps up, you know, to move in that direction. There's so much energy in this universe. One time when I was sitting at IMS quite a while ago, I imagined this bumper sticker in the back of cars that would say, instead of nuclear plants, split your own atoms. You can do it. This last retreat I had, I was just so amazed. I felt like the spaceship (laughs) at the first month. You know, I just felt like there was so much energy. And then the second month, it just became this amazing journey. Faster than any, you know, the the velocity and the, the exploration was amazing because the energy, it was starting to work. The energy started to go up. And this doesn't mean that we don't have the no-energy times or the low-energy times. Sometimes it's effortless, but there are. There are these downs in energy. It's it's inevitable. It happens. Low-energy times are when we can't see as clearly. We have to learn to navigate more carefully. If you think what it's like when you drive through fog, how much slower you have to go and how much more careful you have to be. When you're low energy, be more careful. You really can't trust anything that's going through your mind. 
It's, it's that feeling of almost hibernating or laying low and just getting through it. You just have to get through those times. You just can't see so clearly. This tremendous journey that you're on requires a kind of energy conservation. When you think of climbing a mountain, you carry as little as you need because you don't want to have all that weight. I remember the first time I did any backpacking, I hiked into the Grand Canyon I had never gone backpacking before, and I had a tremendous amount of things in my backpack. And in the Grand Canyon, you you hike down. And so on the way down, I started handing out all my food (laughs) to people coming up. And the person I was with was getting angrier and angrier, because I was giving all my food away. And then I started to, you know, break things in half, like I'd break my toothbrush in half. And it was just, I had never done it before. And it was amazing how much (laughs) I didn't want to carry. That was a great teaching. And it's the same kind of experience in this exploration, this journey of meditation. That's why we encourage you to be silent. It takes so much energy to be conversing. That's why we encourage you not to write very much. Be careful not to turn your notebooks into journals. There's a strong tendency to do that. Reading, another energy drain. These are all ways to just keep bringing the energy in. One of the most important places to pull your energy in more and more over the course of time is in not looking up at people. I encourage you to just see what happens when you do it. You have no control over what happens. If you look at someone, there's going to be a judgment. It's, it's almost 100%. You might not have happen every time, but almost every time there'll be a judgment that goes through the mind. And usually we'll get caught in it. It's a tremendous drain. And it's not like I'm saying, just don't look up at all right now, but slowly pull it in. Because that looking up is an invitation for the judgment and then to go off. Most important, the energy comes from doing the practice. It may sound very simple, what I'm going to say next, but I was amazed this last time I I sat that (laughs) it's just to do it. And that might sound trite or sound silly, but more and more I see that it's just surrendering to the simplicity of just doing it, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, being as mindful as you can. And the energy will come from that. The understanding will come from that. 
in Vipassana, we're really investigating this fluidity of change that's occurring moment by moment. We learn to aim the attention, feel what's there, see what it is, and see how it changes. This is very difficult, challenging, and wonderful, because when we learn to do this, we learn not to identify with this flow of change. We learn not to take it personally. The more we don't identify, the less we react, the less we're fighting with things. When we hold on, or when we push things away, it's very tiring. This is why we get so tired, is that we're busy reacting all the time. The more we flow with the change, the more energy we have. Unless you're perfectly enlightened, you are going to react. You will hold on, you will push away. And you will get lost in what's happening. Part of the process is getting lost and then learning how to work with that particular aspect of mind. Every step that you take, every rotten sitting, every sleepy sitting, every breath that you come back to, every moment of anger that you can open to and let go, this is what allows us to open and awaken more and more. There's nothing that's wasted in this process. It can seem like it at times. We can lose the trust in the process when we get clobbered or drown in what's happening. It's to understand that that's the process itself is losing the thread, getting lost, and then learning how to work with it, learning how to work with boredom, learning how to work with anger. And this takes tremendous courage. Just think what courage it takes to walk in here and sit day after day, sitting after sitting, or to get up and walk. You don't have any idea what's going to happen. And nine times out of ten, you're going to get lost in something. It's difficult, challenging, wonderful. Eventually, we begin to learn to trust everything that happens as our teacher. When we come on retreat, we let go of everything that we've held on to for security. We face our aloneness. We face this incredible uncertainty and vulnerability that we all share as human beings. This flow of impermanence, this great change. And any time you grow, you'll be entering new territory. You'll be facing the unknown. Each moment 
is actually new. Each moment we open to that, there's this growth that happens. But it does take this courage. It does take this tremendous energy. Today I was noticing the monarch butterflies migrating. They're all migrating south now. I read recently somebody describing the monarch butterflies as these stained glass windows moving. They're like these sacred spaces in in movement. So beautiful. And I was thinking about what kind of energy does it take for them to do this journey? They fly thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. And they're these little teeny light things. And recently Stephen and I went down um, to some dunes on the ocean nearby. And I was watching the beginning of this migration and they were flying over the ocean, way low over the waves and over the dunes. And I started to write about it and every time I looked up another one would go over my head. It was just fascinating. And I was thinking about, well, where does that energy come from? We need this tremendous inspiration that comes from within. This energy is coming from within these beings. And we have that energy as well. We're all, what is this blood that unites us? There is this energy present, and it's learning how to flow moment to moment to be in touch with this energy, rather than that fighting and resisting. In relationship to this great journey we're all on, recently I was reading a book called our home planet, or the home planet. And I just wanted to end with a few, I think two quotes from this book. It's quotations from the astronauts from all around the planet. I've never been so touched by a book, and I'm not sure if it's because I read it when I came out of retreat after two months. Sometimes, you know, you're so open that you could be reading Mary Had a Little Lamb and crying with the profundity of it. Uh, But I think that (laughs) these are very beautiful and profound quotes. What touches me the most is that what they describe is that they have themselves been trained for years and years to just look scientifically at things. And when they were going up in the spaceships, they were, they were just incredibly busy doing all these experiments, scientific experiences. And at some moment, each one of them would look out the window and actually see. And they'd have these transformative experiences. These these quotations are so powerful. So I just wanted to read two, and I'll probably read some more throughout the retreat. 
This is from Alexei Leonov, USSR. This was on his spacewalk. I set out into the unknown, and nobody on Earth could tell me what I would encounter. There were no textbooks. This is the first time ever. But I knew for certain that it had to be done. It was clear that I had to be very careful. Take it easy. Take it easy, I told myself. Do not move too quickly. This is the continuation of that quote. What struck me most was the silence. It was a great silence, unlike any I have encountered on earth. So vast and deep that I began to hear my own body, my heart beating, my blood vessels pulsing. Even the rustle of my muscles moving over each other seemed audible. There were more stars in the sky than I expected. The sky was deep black, yet at the same time, bright with sunlight. The earth was small, light blue, and so touchingly alone, our home that must be defended like a holy relic. The earth was absolutely round. I believe I never knew what the word round meant until I saw the earth from space. There's one more small quote from Reinhard Führer from the Federal Republic of Germany. I would have wished that after my return, people had asked me how it was out there, how I had coped with the glistening blackness of the world, and how I felt being a star that circled the earth. Let's sit for a few minutes. 